Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number 10. I'm Steve Cherubino, and joining me as usual is Scott Moulton from MyHardDriveDied.com. What's up, Scott? Hey, how you doing? Doing awesome. I actually, let me take that back. Everything looked so nice. I had bought all new cables for my systems here. My internet connection looked good. And then right before we started the show, it fell out. The internet connection went out again. So um, that just perplexes me like crazy. I'm running out of things to replace. This is getting expensive. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine. So that's, a, that's probably not a good thing for you anyway. You no. know, but you know, these live things, they always do this. You know, I got to give a live demo at a conference and it just explodes or something. So it's true. Live video. I mean, unless you have your system like totally covered, I mean, like tested, tried and true, you, there's a myriad of problems that you run into. But we're looking good now. That's good. Awesome. And uh, I can see you just great. All right, good. All right. Yeah, and actually, actually I, could, I could hear you good. You're on an old school Plantronics, like one of the first digital headsets that they made, right? Yeah, I've got this thing that I bought like in, it's got to be like 2001 or something. <laughs> it doesn't have a date on it, but I bet we could find, it's a DSP 400 headset. So, and uh, I've got this brand new, you know, 27 inch Mac uh, the i7 processor, I plugged the thing right in, worked beautifully, no problems, no drivers, no nothing. And uh, I think this thing may even be like USB 1.0 or something, <laughs> maybe 0. 0.0 or something. But They always you know. sound good. I, and Steve D'Amico, who co-hosts Nuts at Night, he wears one of them and they're great. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. This one works better. I mean, I've got two or three others, but this one uh, I thought I'd try out since it worked really well on my Mac and I didn't have to fight with Windows drivers and stuff. So, right, right. So that's the way I've been going. So, Fighting and of course, now I'm using, you know, the Mac at home here to actually do this this podcast too, so people can see the video. Man, I, I want one of them. I'm so jealous. <laughs> when, when did you get the 27 inch? I actually bought it like in November or something. And so I've been using it for uh, some video editing for my classes. So when I do a class, I. It takes like a week to convert these, uh, you know, ACH, mm -hmm. uh, ACVDs, you know, back to oh, something yeah. that you can actually watch on MPEG-4 or something like that. So, totally. uh, and that's a week at, you know, eight cores going full. So It takes you a week on this computer? Yeah, it takes a week. Wow. Yeah. Yep. The i7, you can only get that from Apple, right? You can't pick that up at the store. Yeah, I ordered it. Yeah. And I've been looking for that at like Best Buy and at the Apple store, but the highest you could get locally is i5 and i hate ordering things i'm too impatient is that, yeah, is, right. that, is that still the only way you can get them uh, as far as i know it is yeah i mean i don't really sh i don't shop for anything except um, impulse buys down at best buy or something like that so right. i usually just order stuff or try to mail order stuff as much as possible yeah, good for you uh, Yep, common process for me. But, you know, by the time that you went shopping down there and then you decided that you're going to keep looking for it locally you could have already ordered it and it been here I, you know, I never thought about that you know, nobody yeah. ever tried to cure me of this, so that might yeah, be one step right. in the right direction. <laughs> well, plus you can save some bucks. So, you know, that's the thing is down at Best Buy, they don't always have the best price. Yeah, they, they don't. The Apple's prices are Apple prices. No, -uh, no, that's not true. Mm -mm. Go down there and look at, like, their time machine backup stuff with their router and stuff. They charge $100 more per box than most of not every one of them, but I have seen them uh, charge more. I've actually saw at one point in time the one terabyte that was selling for two ninety nine on the web was four ninety nine at at the Best Buy, physically uh, at the store. Hmm. So so that's not true. All right. Mm -mm. All right. I'll check it out. Yep. I do have the advantage of going down to Delaware and getting it for tax-free, though. That's oh, that's good. Yeah, but yeah. there's no Apple stores in, in that close to me in Delaware. Anyway, enough Apple stuff. You guys hear me talk about Apple on all the rest of my shows. Let's get into some hard drive stuff here. Scott, what have you been... Uh, we're going to read some actual some listener emails, and we're going to go over them, but uh, what have you been working on lately with the uh, hard drive stuff? I knew last time you talked, we had some new technology you were working on, and how's that going? Um, yeah, we, uh, we met last month, me and you had dinner in Florida. Yes. Um, I was, uh, doing a class for, uh, Sands in Orlando and, uh, you had come down and it was really great having dinner with you and finally getting to meet you after, you know, doing a podcast with you for like a year and something. So, uh, so it was nice to meet you and have dinner with you. But at that time, uh, what I had told you was I was working on some new equipment. Um, I was finishing the Sands class that I had there in March and I had bought like, uh, I had acquired, uh, another $35,000 worth of equipment that um, I was changing the class. I changed day two of my class to include a uh, deep spar disk imager and training for each individual at the, uh, on a deep spar disk imager and to use that for data recovery during the class. 
And so uh, it took me a couple of weeks to get everything together, but I did this last class last week, actually, in Washington, D.C., and um, it worked beautifully. It was fantastic. So for a first run with, uh, you know, day two changed with all new equipment, motherboards on the table and a bunch of hard drives for people to unplug and plug in. Everything came off smoothly. Uh, everything survived. None of my equipment got set on fire or anything like that. <laughs> no drinks poured in the machines. <laughs> so, so, so that was good. It was fantastic, actually. And uh, so now I know exactly how to, how to handle what's going on in that, in, with those pieces of equipment. And I think everybody, uh, every single person gave me just raving reviews about it, that they just thought it was fantastic and it was the way to go. Wow. So everybody so, had a deep spar disk imager at their desk or? Yeah. Uh, what I did was um, there's some equipment that's shared between people. So because I have enough to do 16 people. So there's eight stations. So they're in the middle between each each pair. And so for every pair, there's they're actually at the table on the desk and each person can poke their you know, poke fingers at it and right. do the whole thing and take turns going through the steps for two days. And so, uh, so that, that really helps from that perspective. So everybody had one to play with. Wow. That's really neat. So, yeah, and, it, and in the meantime, cool. you also, in the meantime, you also got a chance to work with that new technology that they came out with. And it's, so it's, it's working well. Yeah. It's, um, you know, again, it's still a slight bit buggy and, uh, we had to work around a couple of bugs but uh, for the most part, it has been pretty great. Um, they had done a recent upgrade, and so the recent upgrade actually fixed one of the problems we were having. But it's like, I, you know, I have to constantly keep reloading all the updates every time I do a class. So oh, just to stay ahead of the curve so that it would work. Huh. Um, but I have another class coming up. Uh, San Diego is uh, three or four weeks away. And so uh, anybody who's interested in getting this kind of training and new stuff, we're actually going to be doing it at the uh, Woodfin uh, Hotel in san diego it looks like a pretty nice hotel i've never been there before though so i don't know um but it it's uh the same idea the same criteria for the class i'm shipping hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment there to actually go and teach the class um but if anybody's interested i'm sure that if you're on that coast that you will find it to be fantastic definitely go and scott we have so many people that want to go i mean we, we've created the desire because it's, yeah. it's just such an awesome, especially since I saw what you did firsthand, it's such an awesome course. And if you, any, you guys yeah. have any inkling of um, wanting to know how to recover data like the real way and just be a professional at it and include it in your businesses, man, this is the way to do it. Take, take Scott's course. Scott, are you going to be, is that when you're going to be on TechZilla? Uh, actually, I'm going, well, TechZilla is in San Francisco. Yeah. So I'm going to San Francisco this weekend. So I'll be on TechZilla supposedly on monday now i don't know if they'll air it on monday right but i'll i'll go there on monday and meet with patrick and uh and either chat with him or do a demo i'm having trouble with shipping right now so it's kind of an issue whether or not i'm gonna have equipment to show or not but oh, man. that's 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 the plan anyway is to to go and uh talk to patrick and demo it and do those kind of things so yeah. that'll be monday uh and i like i said i don't know when they'll air it if they if they like edit it and do it on thursday or or what happens but um um, so that's the plan anyway. Very cool. Now, before I read this email, I just want to say, we did meet down in Orlando and we, we finally met face to face. And I just got to say, like, podcasting is awesome, but the thing that you lack is meeting people face to face. I mean, there's people I've talked to for years that I've never met face to face. So it was, it was really fun to sit down and actually talk with Scott and see what he does. Right. And plus it, you actually got to see my lab. Yeah. Uh, Cause I actually set up a lab. The whole room becomes the lab, actually, as, as you could see. Yeah. Uh, thousands of boxes with thousands of things in them. And uh, I have to constantly do that every class. So it's like starting all over again, rebuild the lab at every de at every desk and every bench all the way across. And so uh, so I guess you got to see the magnitude of it. I don't think oh, you've yeah. probably ever seen a class that had that much equipment. No, that was it was amazing because especially your station up at the front, you have the two giant screens on you and then you got your little like all the equipment lined up on the table and it's just like hard, like, you know, recovered data has no recovered data needs to fear your class or, yeah. <laughs> because right. it will be found or unrecovered data because it's like with all that stuff. I mean, I, I, I couldn't, it was amazing. You got to see it. You got to see it to actually get the full effect. Well, thanks. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's really nice though to have the whole lab there and, you know, pretty much anything anybody wants to, test or try or see we have there so uh it's unusual not to have something that they want to cover right uh so that's that's pretty nice from that standpoint i think everybody gets a chance to see and decide what kind of money they're going to spend i mean because there's different gradients of labs that you can have that start from the low end all the way up to the you know the high end so you can basically invest anywhere between 
you know, a thousand and four thousand for a low level lab. Right. Uh, and then, you know, and get 85% of the drives or so. And then as you move up exponentially, the harder the drive gets, the more expensive the tool is. Hmm. But also so, the more you could charge for those jobs, probably. Um, not, not strictly speaking. Some companies do have like flexible pricing on their stuff, but uh, for the most part, it's, it's kind of wishy-washy when you, you know, when you don't know you're going to send a drive and you don't know if it's going to be 2000 or 5,000 or $800, right. then people, people tend to try to go with somebody who has more fixed pricing. I see. So a lot, a lot of the companies have gone to, you know, some more basic fixed pricing to at I least see. give them an idea of what their upper and lower minimums are going to be. I see. Well, I guess if that's what the competition's doing, then you got to, you got to follow suit. You want to stay well, it makes business. it makes sense. I mean, who wants to go to a car wash and you come out and it's twenty five dollars? You know, when you thought it was going to be three dollars going right, in, right? Because your car was extra dirty. <laughs> right, exactly. It's a van, so it costs more. You know, <laughs> yeah. things like that. Good point. So, yep. All right. Well, let's take this email from Steve-O. He says um, he wanted to ask Scott some questions, and if anybody does want to ask Scott questions, just send me an email at mail at podnuts dot com, and I uh, I'll ask Scott. But he says, uh, can you go into more depth on exactly how to use Victoria? Um, okay. And what, now, Scott, why don't you tell us what Victoria is and then uh, answer the question. Well, uh, Victoria is a free uh, diagnostics tool, basically. Um, there are two versions of Victoria besides the multiple languages because uh, it was originally written by a Russian um, and – a lot of the a lot of the buttons and a lot of different things, depending on which version you get, you can't tell what they do. There is an English version, which is what I use because that's what I can understand. Uh, there's a DOS version and a Windows version, <laughs> and they don't really differ much by capabilities, other than the fact that you know if you're running on DOS, typically your issues are going to be, well, I can't look at things over USB, and I can't look at things over you know certain types of controllers, like maybe an eSATA controller or something like that. Um, so, so those are some of the main things is that when you're looking at functionality, do I use the DOS version? Do I use the Windows version? And then what are the, the differences? I typically use MHDD as a DOS version, and I use Victoria as the Windows version, uh, mainly because MHDD doesn't have a Windows version. And if I have some special piece of equipment, I have to make a choice of, do I have a driver or can I talk to it? So for instance, it's, it's terrible to do diagnostics over USB. Because doing a connector through USB is just a horrible, um, you have no control, you don't have control of the ATA command set. It's really just using a Windows driver that's a mass storage driver to communicate with the device, and you're limited by what it can do. I see. So if I was going to do some sort of diagnostics in Windows, I would have to have the hard drive connected to my controller, directly to the motherboard is what I mean, like the cable. The cable comes out, it either comes out PETA or SATA. So you have your standard parallel IDE, or you have your SATA controller or something like that. Mm -hmm. My problem is, is that let's say I'm traveling with a laptop, and I don't really have access to that motherboard, and I still need to do diagnostics, or, or I, you know, something has sprung on me while I'm in California, and I need to do diagnostics. Right. What can I do, and how cheap can I get away with doing it? Hmm. Um, so I could use a laptop... And I could use an eSATA card. So, you know, you can buy a, you know, what we used to refer to as PCMCIA, but mm -hmm. now they have, you know, express cards right. that you can plug into the slot on the, on the laptop. And as long as you can communicate with the drivers that talk to that chipset, then you will be able to do ATA commands. You'll be able to use ATA specs to communicate with it because then it becomes a piece of hardware as if it's attached to the motherboard, as opposed to, USB, which is your only other choice. So if you have the correct drivers for that card, you could do it. Yeah, it actually works. I've tested it through um, using an express port and connecting a eSATA drive mm -hmm. to that to that system and then doing diagnostics on it. And keep in mind, it's really for doing diagnostics. It's not really strictly for data recovery. Um, here's, here's where the line kind of separates between what can you do versus getting your files back. Most hard drives, when you plug them into Windows, if Windows has some sort of timeout or the API won't let it control it or do some different thing, then you can't see whether or not you can actually talk to the user data or not. As soon as you start copying something off, it may just fail and just bomb. All right. But if you have a tool that understands a little bit more about timing and a little bit more about the functions of the hard drive, what kind of requests can you make? 
If you can make an ATA request to the chipset and then talk directly to the drive, you have a higher potential for being able to tell, I can see user data, but there's some sort of a timing problem or have a bad block or have some other issue. Hmm. And maybe I can, I can actually recover it, but Windows isn't going to see it. So you didn't get an answer. Hmm. So, so ultimately, that's where the difference comes in. Like when I'm doing diagnostics, I want to scan for sectors and I want to see if sectors respond in any kind of timely manner. And if I can read even a single sector from that drive, there's a very good indication that maybe the firmware is working okay and that maybe at least one head is working okay. Um, and that, that that would be a good indication to me that it's not a complete failure, that maybe I can do something without replacing parts, hmm. which is really what I'm trying to stay away from. I'm trying to stay away from replacing parts. Right. And even though I teach people how to do that in the class and stuff along those lines, you really should take those as last resorts. They should not be the very first thought you think of sure. is, oh, let's go replace a, a, a head assembly right. or something like that. Right. So, um, so Victoria is primarily for doing diagnostics to see if you can communicate with the drive through the ATA chipset if possible. And the reason you would use the Windows version is because you need some special driver that does allow access to your local controller of some kind. Um, that would be the only useful thing that you would do in Windows from that perspective because th there's just no other reason, I guess, to try to do that data recovery function for low-level stuff in Windows because you just can't control the timing for the most part. So the only real reason you'd want to use Victoria is if um, you're, you're in a spot where um, you, you're like, like you said, like you're on the road or something and you're, you have a laptop, let's say, and you want to do diagnostics on a drive and MHDD is DOS based, so you can't get use the Express SATA slot or something like that. Yeah, I, I mean that's certainly one one instance. I mean, you may want to actually do diagnostics on the local hard drive that's plugged into that machine or that laptop, or even if you had a desktop workstation that you could plug hard drives into the controller, then you could do some basic diagnostics for free using Victoria, and it will test it will test blocks, it will test you know to at least make sure that you can communicate with it. It'll test a smart It'll test a, a number of the low-level basic functions. Uh, it, it by no means is complete as far as like everything you can do with it, mm -hmm. but it does have some functions that will help you. It has a little bit of an editor in it, so you can actually go and view sectors. Um, so for there's not many free tools that will help you do anything. So ultimately, that's why MHDD and Victoria are so valuable, is that they're two of the only tools in that category that will help you do any kind of diagnostics um, they may not solve your problem for you, and they may not always be able to get off the data that you want, and, but that wasn't their job. Their job was to do diagnostics to see if the drive is functional and so that you know what you have to do with it. Hmm. Um, so that's ultimately where you would start and finish. But you're right. I mean, it would certainly be you'd have to have some known requirement that that's what you're looking for, that it's not just going to be out of the blue. But it certainly would be one of the first places I would start. Like I start with MHDD all the time. Um, so if I have drives that have like an HPA set or a password that I might need to clear and I know it, I might be able to do that with uh, MHDD. And Victoria will do some of those functions as well. Um, so ultimately, that's what you're looking at is the difference between when is a free tool going to give me a good answer and, you know, can I see user data right. versus using some horrible Windows tool that has no idea what we're looking at. Right. Well, I guess I guess what the question that you leave me with here is why why wouldn't you use MHDD over Victoria just because it's a matter of preference? I mean, of course, like like you said, of course, when you're on the road and you need to, you don't have like stuff that DOS recognizes, you could use Victoria if it's Windows based. But what do you, do you use MHDD more time more than Victoria? Yeah, I do use MHDD more than I use Victoria mainly because I do have motherboards sitting around that I have access to. You'd be surprised at how hard that is for some people to find these days is a motherboard that they actually have access to. Right. You know, people tend to like laptops quite a bit. Right. And so, you know, a lot of people are also afraid of, you know, you got a new generation who's never used DOS. And so they want a GUI application right. that okay. looks all pretty and can do things. So, right. you know, there are some instances where that may be valuable or, right. you know, okay. but ultimately I I can't say that there's enough of a difference between what the two functions are that they would do, right. that there's some great reason to use Victoria at this point over MHDD um, if you have access to the motherboard. And there is some there is a downside to using Victoria in Windows, uh, which is one, which is if your machine is busy, if you 
you know, drop to a DOS prompt and you're searching through files, that it's possible that you might impact the the functions that Victoria is doing to that drive. It may run slower. Hmm. It may it may so you really have to kind of like set it up as I'm not going to touch you. I'm going to just let you do your job. Right. And uh, not really mess with the Windows machine at the same time, or you may have an issue with that. I see. Yeah, I'm a fan of GUIs as well. I'm a GUI guy. Yeah, it's uh, but when you're doing some low-level stuff, sometimes the GUI isn't the way to go. Yeah. Um, I can certainly do some things from a Linux DOS prompt or something that I can't do from Windows, or I can see certain errors in their log files that nothing else will report in Windows or a Mac. Right. So, so there are certainly times, obviously, that just you know. I kind of think of it like, you know, the iPhone or the iPad, like you start up an app and you're doing something and it crashes and it just goes away. Like they don't even say, Ooh, I'm sorry. I crashed. It just, bam, it's just gone and returns to the home screen. And I guess the thought was, was, well, if we give them less information and we don't tell them anything bad happened, maybe they'll forget or maybe they'll go, Hey, maybe it's my imagination. I don't know. But and that's, that's awesome. kind of what I think of as GUIs for the most part. Very few of them will give you logs and feedback and uh, tell you what's actually going on. Whereas, you know, something like Linux is actually tracking much more of its equipment and things that are going on. And a lot of DOS applications and stuff, they're not just going to like quit and not tell right. you something bad happened. Right. So you can kind of tell what's going on or have a single purpose machine. There's a lot of, a lot of benefit to a single purpose machine from that perspective. Hmm. All right. Well, that definitely answered the question. Uh, he, Steve-O also says, if you swap out slower sectors to the G list, can't you just defrag to get them back in line so you're not flying all over the drive looking for data? No, that's not a true statement at all. Okay, so, all right, so what ends up happening is... What's the G list? The G list is what you would know as your bad block list. Okay. So there's two lists, basically, or three or four, depending on what the manufacturer is. You have your G list and your P list, and then you can also have P tracks, and there's some other manufacturers who do some basic other types of tracks to track bad bad areas of their drive and stuff, like uh, system area tracks. Um, ultimately, though, as your drive is being used and it notices that a block is going bad and it can't write data there, then that's what is normally known as the G list. It's going to go, and it's called a groan list. That's what the G list stands for, groan list. Okay. It is going to groan, and it's grown as in I'm growing a tree, not as in, oh, man, that was bad. <laughs> so, so that's a different kind of groan. Um, but ultimately, the whole point ended up being is that you have, in order for you to have a location that's the same as that sector, so that so you're you're going along, and you have block number one, and then you have block number two, and block number two is bad. You have to have a new place to put block number two because when something calls block number two, it still expects it to be block number two because when you call block number three, whatever that location is still has to be the same. Right. So you would just have a hole in the middle. So instead, there's this reallocation flag that says, go to this reserved area, and we have a little farm of sectors that's just set aside. Right. And we're going to take the first one in that farm and we're going to point a flag to that and we're going to say, you now are block number two. Okay. And we're going to put your data there. So there's there's kind of a problem, which is if that if it happened to be that the system area, because the system area is this kind of like little mini OS that runs on the drive. So in other words, your drive boots up and it has this little OS that runs on it that no one really thinks about. They just think it's a piece of hardware and there it goes. Right. But there's actually like this little operating system that runs on the drive and that has a little reserved area for bad blocks. And so that may be anywhere on any of the platters. It doesn't have to be on the platter that the bad block is on. It just is known as the system area. It is a reserved place and it could be on a different platter. Okay. And if it is on a different platter, you have to turn off the head and you have to switch to the correct head and turn that head on in order to write your content to that location. So you do have a little bit of a, a time problem. Mm -hmm. So so the guy's statement is, uh, Steve-O's statement, is partially correct in the fact that you do have a little bit of a wash with regards to now you've got this you know bad block and you've now put it in a good space, but now you've got this time that you lose. It slows you down to go and read that and to write to that space. Hmm. So every time I say block two, it has to basically stop what it's doing, go to block two, and then come back from right. block two to read block three. Right. And so you have more latency and more time. 
Um, this has nothing to do with defragmentation. Now, defragmentation is more from a files aspect, not from the physical low-level aspect. Right. So it, when the operating system says, I need this file, it just is requesting those blocks. And so when you're defragmenting, you're making a contiguous set of blocks. It doesn't go away, though. Whatever was in block two is still going to have to be written. There's still something that's going to have to be in block two, so it's still going to have to do that. Hmm. You could try to avoid every bad block and never use them, but you don't know what they are. The drive knows and keeps track of them and does not report them to you. There is no function for the drive to say, here's my list. Um, not without special equipment. There are three pieces of special equipment that will report those bad blocks to you that you can you know, edit or look at or do something with, but they're, you know, data recovery pieces of equipment. They're not the kind of thing you find off the shelf someplace. Right. Um, but it's just an allocation of space and that allocation of space always has to be there. And so it doesn't matter if you defrag your hard drive or not, you're just going to put another file there, or yeah. there's going to be some other piece that it has to read. Um, and that's a, that's just going to be a timing problem. It is going to slow down, but there's no, there's no benefit. There's no way to actually do anything with them. Um, once you've marked them bad, you wouldn't use them again. So I think his real question has to do with what if we get rid of slow sectors? Right. What if I had this old hard drive and I try to get rid of slow sectors so that I don't have this bad response time? Mm -hmm. And you can have sectors that say, let's say a sector takes up to 600 milliseconds to respond. Right. Well, 600 milliseconds is a long time when all your other sectors respond at, say, 10 milliseconds or... 50 milliseconds. Right. So it is possible that you could have a head turn off, go to the correct location, read the data, and then come back from that bad block, from that reallocated bad block in less than 600 milliseconds. Hmm. So there is a chance that obviously that you can make your drive faster by killing those bad blocks. And But it will have an, a table that's a limited size that has to point to this other location. So if you have, you know, 45 bad blocks all pointing to this table, you are going to lose some speed right. for it to go to there. Will you lose 600 milliseconds per a sector? Maybe not. It, probably not. What, um, what what program actually swaps out the slow sectors to G-List? Does Victoria do that? Um, yeah, MHCD and Victoria both will. Now, okay. Victoria in Windows does something different, which may be a little more detrimental because you have to turn on PIO mode and you have to have all these things set up. Whereas NMHDD, because it's a singular purpose machine and the way it's set up, it's a little easier to do. So once you actually are diagnosing your drive, you could you can actually change the configuration so that, um, and here's the thing is it's done in a text file. You'd have to like quit the application. You go to this text file and you edit it and you say, how many milliseconds does it take for you know this sector to respond and kill it? If it's, you know, below that or if it's above that. So you could say 200 milliseconds. Uh -huh. Then you start it back up and you do a scan with a destructive setting. It's called destructive scan. Right. And as it goes along the drive, every time something takes longer than 200 milliseconds to respond, uh, it will mark it as bad and then we'll replace it with the with the reallocated block so that you can actually go and write data there. And then the drive will do that function from then on. But keep in mind, that's kind of a bad thing to do, especially if, like, it's an old laptop drive or something because, you know, 200 milliseconds is a low number for something like that. I get you. Um, and the closer you get to the center of the disk, the slower your sectors respond because there's less of them. Hmm. So you have less you have less sectors. So as you're reading these numbers higher, it takes more time for them to respond. There is a tool that you can test that will tell you how fast your sectors are responding all the way across the disk. Um, besides, Vic, you know, Victoria or MHDD, there's a way to actually chart this so that you can get a good picture. Um, there's a there's a Linux tool that's called Bonnie Plus Plus, and Bonnie Plus Plus has a tool that's added to it called ZCAV, and ZCAV stands for Zoned Constant Angular Velocity. Um, so you have a constant angular velocity because the head is moving across the platter at the same speed, or in theory, the same speed, and you have something called zone tables. And zone tables are a logical breakdown of the locations on the disk and how fast they are. So in other words, when you're, when you're reading and writing, you don't have to turn on and off your heads all the way down through the whole stack, no matter how many platters you have. You're going to write across the top of one platter. You might write, you know, four, four million sectors because it takes more time to turn off the head and switch to another platter than it does just to write four million at once. Hmm. So they just so they broke up something into what's called zone tables. Manufacturers is they. Uh, manufacturers would make something called a zone table, and it would say, 
anytime you request sector one through, you know, four million, they're all going to be on this side of this platter with this one head. And then when you get to the end of four million, at starting at you know five million or you know four million and one, you're going to switch to the second platter, and then that will be the next fastest location on the drive. So it's all broken down by its fastest locations. And this ZCAV tool will take any drive or rate arrays or anything and will test them and then give you back your numbers so that you can kind of chart and graph them so you can see what it plots, where your fastest locations on your disk are. Well, even just re- without plotting, I'm, well, I mean, plotting's cool, but is it able then to just, um, like if you run these, like say you get a brand new hard drive, it, it sounds like it'd be a good idea to run these tools on the drive and just make sure you get all your fastest sectors in place so that the drive runs faster before you put any data on it. Would that be a smart thing to do? or? Um, yeah, certainly it could be a great idea. You know, if you have a, you know, the idea is now as more advanced drives are coming and we've had larger drives that the manufacturer is low level testing them first. Supposedly when they come from the factory, that test has already been run. Okay. Um, oh, okay. Here's the here's the reason why. Those These are the ones that are called the P-lists or the P-track. So so as you're you're reading or writing along and you have no data. At, remember, at, at manufacturing time, there's no data. Okay. So they don't have to redirect your data. They don't have to say you're still LVA block two. Let's go find LBA block two and come back. Right. They can say, well, you were going to be LBA block two, but you really suck. You're a bad sector. So <laughs> let's kick sector. you to the curb and LBA block two will be the next one. And so the next block that would have been LBA block three will now be LBA block two. And then they will reallocate the rest of the disk in that fashion. I see. And so that P table, that P list is very, very important because if you lose the P list, then what you was going to be LBA block two would then become LBA block two uh, huh. and you will have a bad one where that used to be and all your data will be shifted. So you will have a spot where the data is then shifted incorrectly I and see. that your LBA blocks will be out of sync. So that table is a critical table. It's very important for you to, and that's, that's considered part of the firmware, uh, part of the system area, this operating system that exists. Um, so, so ultimately they do that at manufacturing time so that when you get it, it looks like there's no bad blocks. Right. Now, back in the day, when you would go buy like an MFM or an RLL or whatever, if you remember correctly, there was a on the drives label, they would have had your bad blocks. They would have printed them on the label. And so you would actually sit down at your computer and you would go, here's my geometry for my disk, and you'd enter that. And then you would enter your bad block list from the table, from what the manufacturer already knew to be your bad block list, so that you didn't have to test it or have, you know, worry about bad blocks. So you used to have to actually manually enter them. So when you would shop for a hard drive at the store, you would go and look at the drives, and you would make sure you had a short list so <laughs> that you didn't have to spend, you know, three hours. Are you that. serious? I never knew I'm that. Hundred percent. It's a hundred. Like you can actually see that if you actually search for old hard drives, you'll see on their labels and stuff. You'll see these, the you know, bad, bad block list, and it'll actually wow. say something like that, and it'll show it. I had um, an MFM one time. I worked on recently. Uh, what's that? I'll find you a link and I'll email it to you so you can put it in show notes or something. All but. right, all right. Yeah, I had an MFM drive before I like sold my shop about a year or so ago, and it, I remember. Um, I, I don't remember looking for the bad blocks, but I should have looked at that time. That would have been neat to just do a little experiments on that thing. Yeah, you, see, going back in time, if you had to, because remember, one there's this. Uh, I guess it's one of these companies that was like Microhouse or something that makes right. like the microscope testing tools or something like that. Right. Um. They uh they used to, their big claim to fame before they started making these boards that you could put in a computer and test or whatever, was that they had this big, giant, thick book of all the geometry specs for every hard drive. Because huh. you used to, you know, now they work automatically with right. IDE and the whole thing is all right. automatically pre-configured. Um, but back in the day, you had to enter in all these, you know, the cylinders, heads, and sectors, and all the locations and everything that you actually had to do ahead of time. Right, or just try, you had to put in the type. They, it, didn't it characterize them by types? Oh, that was second. That was the next round. Uh, yeah, like they actually started putting in the bias, like a set, a small set of forty-two or something of the drives right. that the would always be the same. And uh, and then there was, you know, then auto came into play. If you remember auto, and everybody yes. was happy with auto. Yes. And uh, but earlier than that, you had to man- manually enter everything before that. Even with the ones that you had those 42 tables, you had to try to figure out which table was the appropriate table. And uh, if you chose the geometry wrong twice, like if you pulled it out and put it in another machine, you better know what that geometry was set up for. Oh, or you won't man. be able to access your data. Damn. Remember that? I'm, well, <laughs> a little bit, man. I, I was yeah. young. I was young at that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, was, I wasn't 
old, but I was older. <laughs> so yeah, I was old. around for those days. I remember. <laughs> that's old school. Yeah, yeah, it was old school, but it and it was a pain in the butt. But I remember, I remember it. And you know, the funny thing is, we still have legacy stuff that happens because of the way those were designed. Huh. The, the way our partition structures and the design for our partitions and the way cylinders work is still basically honored today. Although Vista and Windows 7 have changed it a little bit, it's still basically honored and honored by almost every operating system. Hmm. Cool. Uh, well, let's. Uh, want, me, want me to go on and read the last part of this email? Sure. Yeah, I think I answered that question correctly. If you want to, if you want to just make sure I answered all of his questions, because there's a. You know, I think it was all about timing. He just wanted to make sure that uh, I think that that was the appropriate answer was that he didn't just want to make it go away just because it was defragmenting or something. Yeah. There's, there's there's no benefit from that standpoint. It'll always write that data in those sectors, but uh, you can keep on going. Yeah, he, he uh, you did answer it. I'm reading it now. But okay. he has a little end part on it, and he says, uh, also, what can you do with the data that you get back from MHDD? What corrections can you make with the software? Um, he's looking for like a step-by-step and we don't have to go like as a step-by-step tutorial on the podcast, but just something you could say to answer his question. Like, what do you do with the data you get back from MHDD? What corrections can you make with the software for us drive novices? Well, uh, both MHDD and Victoria have two basic functions, which is, uh, you know, the first one is, is that they can basically do a step-by-step check of your drive sector by sector and tell you how fast sectors are reporting, how many are in error and things like that. So they will respond with those things. The the second thing that they can do is in in most instances you have an option for remap, and so in other words it would say if there was an error and for some reason I couldn't read it, let me retry this like twenty times and if I can finally read it at one point in time by exceeding the bounds of what Windows would normally do, then I can put this in this relocated area trying to salvage my drive. Um, I would almost say it's kind of like Spinrite, although, you know, that kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth because, you know, you're a little more blind about what's going on. Right. You're, you know, it's always on the same drive and I just hate doing that. But, you know, you should, if, if it's critical data, this may be a critical function that may kill your drive in the process. You need to be cautious about doing a remap, um, but it can possibly make a drive bootable again. But if you're actually in a state that that's bad then and you make it that far, and that fixes your problem, then you should clone your data, back up your data. That's another thing that, you know, SpinRight kind of leaves people thinking, well, I've repaired your drive, so therefore you can keep using it. Right. But keep in mind that your data is much more valuable than that, so people don't back up their data and move on. But th- those are two of the main things that they can do. Now, um, MHDD has the ability to spit sectors out to a file. So in other words, I'm reading a drive, and let's say I do some diagnostics, and I, you know, I hit something like Shift F2. And Shift F2 will give you some data back that will say, I've got a model number, a serial number, and the geometry of my disk, how many how many LBA blocks I have. Well, those three things are very valuable. Um, if you know the model and the serial number and you get your geometry back, there's a great chance that that means that your, your hard drive made it through the firmware phase. So that's probably not a bad board. Now, there's some exclusions to that, some exceptions. But for the most part, you can feel fairly confident if you got that information, you had to read data from the drive in order to do that. Okay. And you can also display smart data. So smart data will also tell you because those are tables that come from the system area. They're coming from the operating system of the drive itself, which means a head had to read some data from the drive. So you can feel pretty confident that now I've made it through power cycle, through the PCB board, through the printed circuit board, and through some basic functions of firmware in order for it to respond to me, hmm. which means don't be thinking about just immediately swapping boards or doing something like that. Right. But MHDD has this function that says read sectors to a file. So if you had another fat formatted hard drive on your computer, you could read the sectors from that that user-based disk that might not have been able to read, be read by Windows or something else and spit them out in a file, hmm. which will be raw. It'll be the same exact thing as doing like a DD image. So you could do DD images basically by doing um, to file. So huh. there's a way to do um, from sectors to file and spit those out onto the drive. Um, and you have to do them like in two gig chunks or something because that's to be the maximum that it'll support or something. Uh, huh. You can do FAT32 and maybe get four gigs out of it. It's not the preferred method to do it, but you may be able to get sectors off. Um, obviously, in DOS, you can't read and write in TFS, so you can't huh. do one full-size image. Okay. 
but uh, but you may make it through doing some recovery with those files and then use a tool that can read DD images. Uh, so if you made a DD image, which is what we do in forensics all the time, and that's what we do for most of our jobs, is we make an image that is a DD image or an in-case image, and then we can go read the data from inside that image. So that is your recovery. That could be the entire thing. So wow. you could do something like RStudios and mount that DD image in RStudios and recover your data. Wow. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, it's a it's a great way. Your biggest problem is timing. That's that's the biggest problem of all when you're doing data recovery is that it may respond in a thousand milliseconds and you may be able to read it. You just have to read it slower. Huh. And none of the other normal windows or normal tools or USB devices will respond in a thousand milliseconds. They'll try to cut it off like it's, you know, five or six hundred milliseconds and I they'll see. they'll die. You know what? I'll we talked about this in the last Podnuts Daily, actually. We, there's there's a couple. There's, you know, my guest was Timster, and you had one way of, of recovering data. And then I, I just remember what I normally did at the shop. And let me just ask you this. Okay, say somebody comes in with a drive that's failing, and they want their data off of that drive. The way I did it, or well, well let me say, most techs, I think, will try to cl- immediately clone that drive before they do anything else. They immediately try to clone the drive. But m- my school of thought on it was, Cloning the drive takes a lot of puts a lot of uh, stress on the drive. Um, it takes a long time. What I would try to do, I, I would throw a Nopix installation, like a live CD, into the computer, and then just see if Nopix could find um, like his My Documents folder. And as soon as I saw that, just just copy the My Documents folder over to another drive or somewhere else before I did anything else, thinking that that would be less stressful than just trying to clone the whole drive. Um, what's what's the best way to, to first attack doing data recovery on a drive that you know is flaky and you, you have to get the data off? Well, you know, that's a it's it's a very good topic and it's a very uh it's it's a very long topic from a standpoint of all the different options of what you're looking at. Um you have a good concept though with regards to even using Nopics to do that. Uh here here's why. Um now there's a downside and there's and there's a plus side. Um so the first thing is if you have a hard drive. And let's say you're plugging it in and your operating system mounts it. Mm-hmm. Your head kind of thrashes around. It, it will bounce back and forth reading the files or read the file system. It'll mm-hmm. go and check stuff. And so it'll make it'll jump back and forth, you know, as many as, you know, 60 times a second across the entire disk. Okay. Which is different than if you started the drive up and it read the system area and then you started imaging it. Because uh-huh. when you do when you start imaging it, it starts at LBA block zero, starts at the beginning of the yeah. disk. And it will gradually move the head step by step all the way across the drive until it's done hmm. with without this thrashing movement right. that goes back and forth. So there's always potential that the thrashing of this drive moving back and forth and that, you know, it's moving the head all over the place is it's potentially doing damage huh. because you have you have fragmentation. Now, keep in mind, your drive doesn't know anything about your operating system or your files. It knows about sectors. Right. And so as far as it's concerned, it doesn't have to be read. It, with a thrashing motion, but your operating system is requiring it to do that mm-hmm. because your operating system says, mount the MFT, then look for your files. And then these are clusters, and we're going to take these clusters and convert them to LBA blocks. And then we're going to send your head all over the disk to go and get them. Nice. So now using Nopix, there is one real good benefit, which is when you mount a MFT hard drive, an, an NTFS formatted hard drive, a Windows hard drive in Nopix, it doesn't read all of the tables of the MFT. So things like security and all of this other, you know, uh, EFS encryption stuff may not be read. And so there's a lot of things that aren't read, which might have crashed in Windows. Let's nice. say a table was corrupt right. and Windows reads it. The, you know, it's if you're reading more than the MFT and your files are only identified in the MFT. So ultimately you could use the MFT, the little database of records right. to go and find those files. So this is why, um, if you recall this new equipment, I'm using MFTs basically to restore the data, hmm. but I'm doing it sequentially. So similar to what you said, if I only need the My Documents folder, what I'm doing now in data recovery would be, well, we use a tool that copies the MFT, then we select the folders that we want, it converts them to the proper LBA blocks, and then when we image them, it will image them sequentially but not every sector, only the sectors that were important to that My Documents folder. So that sounds like the best way to do it. 
that that in my opinion is one of the best ways to do it because it is uh you're not impacting the drive as much you only really have to read this mft file which is usually a small file you know 300 megs or so and depending on the size of your drive and how many files you got and then sequentially reading the disk in order of their lba blocks without thrashing around with the file system so it is possible to read this mft on a on a dos based device and not cause the operating system to thrash around. It's just a file. We just copy it. Hmm. And then uh, and then we can use something to identify what those files are that is not the source drive. So I'm not touching that source location three or four or five times. But, I will only read the sectors that I need to. Okay. Uh, now, in data recovery, there is, there, you know, when there's a situation where maybe it's not the MFT or maybe it's, you know, a Mac hard drive or something, that you may be much more successful at imaging the drive and doing a complete copy of the drive rather than trying to mount it in the file system because you're having to use like a Mac or Windows or something to mount it or even, you know, Nopix in this particular instance, and it may cause further stress on the file system. So that's that's the problem. Um, now, in data recovery, we also can do things like read images backwards or sectors backwards. So a lot of times what's happening, let's say you're reading something with Nopix and you're copying the file, and for some reason it fails and crashes. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to go back and do it again, so you don't get you don't get where you left off necessarily, unless you can go figure out what your files were, what you got a whole copy of, and what you didn't get, and then go back and try to do it again. So there's a potential for major failure there, where you can't pick up where you left off. Well, that's one of now, the reasons why I like to use Nopix because it it tells you if some, if a file fails, you just say skip it. Yeah, no, no, I understand that. But what I'm saying is, you know, in the process of, say, a database that might be 300 megs big, then maybe you've got some sectors that you read and some sectors that you didn't, but you've got to start that back over again in order to get the complete file. In in my world, that's not true. In yeah. my world, I can read individual sectors, yeah. and then wherever a sector fails, I can I can read all the other sectors and come back and focus on a I single see. sector. Now, so there may be one sector that failed instead of 20 or 100. Right. I get what you're saying. Now, But to do that method, you need the deep spar disk imager, right? Yeah, you need a tool. Well, there is a there is built into Linux. There's the ability to do DD Rescue. Now, DD Rescue is very similar to the functions that a deep spar disk imager does, um, albeit a lot slower, and it, does, and it does them a little bit different. But the idea is it starts with these bigger blocks and kind of whittles its way down block by block when it's imaging a device or imaging... Uh, you know, files or whatever it's trying to do. So there is a, a possibility that you could be better at what you're doing just by learning to do more things with DD Rescue huh. as opposed to spending money on a DSPAR disk imager right. or something along those lines. Hmm. Okay. Well, that answers the question. I, I I didn't think even think about that thrashing motion you were talking about. So. Yeah. I mean, it may be that what you're doing is the cheapest, easiest, and quickest way for you to get to it. It may be, uh, it may be it's safer than maybe plugging it into Windows itself. It may not be the safest right. method, uh, as you know. There may be you're halfway in between, maybe. Right, that's a tough one. Interesting. Thanks for answering that one for me, Scott. Yeah, no problem. All right, let me read some uh, an email here for Andrew, and then we'll end off. This is in three parts, so we'll just go down the list here. First thing he says is, um, um, I he actually this is an email to Scott. And I'm just reading. It. He says, "I listen to you on Podlets.com. I love your shows. Uh, they're so informative on hard drive recovery. I was even thinking about getting into the business myself." My question comes in three parts. Number one, you mentioned not using USB interfaces. Did you mean those devices that they sell uh, that are for connecting internal hard drives to an external USB? Uh, yes, that is pretty much what I meant. However, I meant USB, period. Uh, you know, you go buy an external case that has a hard drive in it. It's still connected over USB and it's still connected to this cheap, you know, Chinese Taiwan board or something that's in there. And it is not doing everything that would happen if your drive was plugged directly into your motherboard. You're not doing a lot of the error control. You're not doing... So if you're actually trying to do data recovery, you know, that's not the best way to go. That might be fine if you got a working drive and you're copying files to it, and that might be a good destination disk for you to copy the source files to, but that is not where you should start with data recovery. You should start by putting the drive on a motherboard connected to adapters that actually have chipsets are on them that you can control. So that's why I say the ATA chipset that's on the motherboard is better than nothing, although you can get better controllers. So you go buy an old Adaptec 1200A or something like that. There's a 1200A RAID controller that's still an IDE controller 
that you can put bridge boards on and hook up SATA drives to and copy data off. And the chip on that is going to be much better and much more robust uh, and better for testing in something like MHDD gotcha. than, than trying to just plug something in through USB. You're not going to get a correct response from a drive. It'll just die or never work or not clone or 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 have all kinds of timing problems if you're just doing it through USB. Just trust me, avoid USB. People seem to have forgotten how bad that sucked. You know, back in the day, people would talk about it. You know, oh, well, I got so much better response from my driver. It's much more stable. Hmm. But when you plug it in over USB, it was meant to just be, okay, better than a modem. Right. And, you know, that's about it. It's That's what you're looking at. So it is not a great source. Now, that may change with the USB 3.0. I'm doubtful right. that that will still be better. Right. But, for for um, data recovery. But that's the way to go. That's, that's you know, avoid avoid, avoid that. Just go get, seriously, a $40 motherboard with an NVIDIA chipset on it or an AMD chipset on it or something. Uh, and I only say that because Intel does some things to block the BIOS and stuff. So it's a little bit better for data recovery to use an AMD or, or an NVIDIA chipset. Um, and to get, you know, even a, a twenty dollar, thirty dollar uh, Sephiron chip or something on a motherboard, mm-hmm. and just slap those on a table hmm. and plug hard drives into it, and you'll do a hundred times better. I guarantee you, for like forty forty percent of drives anybody's ever tried to recover, they could recover if they just plugged it into that motherboard. Wow, man, that's great advice. And I'll, I'll tell you what, too. I mean, there's a couple solutions for this. I know Steve D'Amico from from Nuts at Night. He's got like a little shuttle PC that he uses as his bench computer, mm-hmm. and he basically just knocked out like a the 3.5 inch bay cover on the front and just right. took cables from the motherboard and just ro- ran them through that hole. So it, it basically looks like a computer with an IDE cable and a SATA cable just coming out of the front of the machine. Right. And he uses that to, uh, to hook up drives rather than hooking up through USB. See, see those were really common for, uh, for people to use, uh, doing forensics too. That's very common to use the shuttle drive. And then, you know, instead of putting a CD-ROM or something in or a three, right. you know, a two and a half inch, or, you know, cause they still have floppy disk locations in there for them too right it's just to bring the cables right out the front and connect them to it and then there was um in case who sells some forensic software had this block device that was uh it looked like a square that looked like it would fit in that you know bay right and basically it was a right blocker so you could hook it right up to it and so you could do you know forensics right through the box directly off the ide controller oh, that's too. cool too you know what else? Yeah. else might be a good idea is um, one of those like hot swappable bays where you open yeah, them up, you open you know, it up like I, a refrigerator. I, use, I used to use a lot of bays, and I stopped using bays because you don't always have access, like or something's too big to fit in there. You got to put a bridge board in, or yeah. you have to you know look at the drive while you're doing it, or swap boards. And good. so yeah. they have stopped. I would rather just have a really long cable now hmm. and just come right out of the the bay and actually plug it right in. But um. I'm really big about having power, control on power, so I can turn the power on and off on the drive, plug it in, turn it back on, you know, try to sync back with it. And so, you know, that's one of the nice things about using something else, like, you know, something that has a bias that can actually resync with your drive. I see. Good point. All right, cool. All right, question, uh, part number two. I would like to know more info on MHDD and these error codes it gives back and what uh, that references, as well as if you have a site I can go to for a good tutorial on this. Okay, so uh, MHDD is written by uh, Dimitri, who is the guy who also wrote another tool called the, the Atola Insight. And he runs a website that's called hddguru.com. And so if you go to hddguru.com, there's a forums. And in the forums, they will talk about what these functions are. So if you do a search in their forum, you will find a lot of the error codes and things. Now, I put the error codes, like I actually use those error codes in my class. So those error codes are used across the board. The basics of those error codes are not just used for MHDD. They're used for other uh, data recovery tools. So like, for instance, when a sector has a, an error like an AMNF, an address marker not found, it's actually a particular location right before the 512 bytes of user data. Uh, that basically is a go marker. It actually says something like, "Here, I'm. I get 512 bytes. You're ready. Go." Huh. And that's and that's what AMNF means. So that's address marker not found. So if it can't find the go marker, then it doesn't know where the 512 bytes are inside the sector. Uh, most people think a sector is only just the 512 bytes, but that's not true. There's all of these other encoded signatures that are in it that have to do with addresses and relocation flags and beginning and ending points and ECC. And uh, a real sector is probably going to be closer to something like 591 bytes if you look at 
the buffering space and what it does for randomization and what those sectors store as far as data for addresses and other stuff. Okay. So there is a list of them and it's a, a fairly extensive list. Um, you know, maybe it's possible I'll try to do a conference or something that includes some of those in there huh. or something along the way. That's but cool. um, I do use some of that material in my class. So if you're interested, we can do it in the class or if you can find it on uh, MHDD, or any of the other higher end tools like a PC three thousand or or a, a, a deep star disk imager will at least tell you what they are. Hmm. Um, they'll give you a basic idea. I don't know that they'll be in depth as far as what kind of problem that they are, but um, but we do go through that. Cool, sounds good for that one. All right, last part is heard some thoughts on shadow copies and intrigued me as I semi work in the IT field. How can you have a user restore previous versions of their doc? Looking for some more, looking for more info on that as well. Okay, so uh, so here here's how this whole thing started. Basically, um, when a server needed to be backed up, you would have so that the database or something that you were backing up. Let's say you were doing an Exchange Server, and a server had to back up a database. When you would normally use backup software, that would be a sector by sector backup. It would look at sector, back it up, or copy a file out. And these files would change during the process of them being backed up, which is bad, obviously. If it changes, well, one of two things would happen. Either you have to lock the file so that it doesn't change while you're using it or take it offline, which would be bad for Exchange Server in a busy organization um, if it goes offline. Uh, or you'd have to find a way to take a snapshot of it and kind of freeze that in time so that you can make a backup of the snapshot at the time that you took it. Hmm. So that was what happened in, in uh, Server 2003, basically, is what we're looking at is Server 2003 comes out and it goes, well, we're going to try to do this you know, snapshot. It's called VSS, uh, is what they call volume snapshotting. Uh, I think Server 2000, 2000 also had it in it. Um, and so you would do this volume snapshotting. And what it does is it creates a little reserved area on the disk that's not accessible uh, by normal means. It's a, it's a reserved area. And when you would initiate, say, Seagate backup or Veritas backup or whatever, it would do this volume snapshot. It would take a little delta, and anything that changed, it would store uh, in this delta and while the backup was going on. And then you would make this backup, and then it would release that space, and it would go back to being used again. And as time went on, this function looks very useful in other things. So, for instance, um, XP itself does not have this function in it, per se. They do... Um, system restore, basically, which is a delta, a backup of your drivers. Well, now in Vista and in Windows 7, both of these have enabled the volume snapshotting feature, which is instead, it's not just a snapshot of your of your drivers so that you can roll back drivers. It's a snapshot of, of data and deltas of your data as wow. they're changing. Wow. So... So uh, so you're looking at all your servers, have it in there. So 2000, 2003, uh, 2007, and now 2010, or 2008 and 2010, because 2007 is Exchange Server. Uh, so those all have the basics of volume snapshotting in them. And the users that are connected to a share, a shared folder on the network. So in other words, you set up drive V, mm -hmm. and it's shared on the server. If you're on XP connected to the server using that share, that share can be volume snapshotted so that you can have a user who say, let's say they're in their in their PowerPoint document on the shared drive. They open up the PowerPoint document and they accidentally hit a key and deleted half their document and it saved. You can go back. You can just close PowerPoint. You can go back to PowerPoint. You can right click on it, even in XP. Mm -hmm. uh, you could go back to PowerPoint and you could right click on the file and you could say, show me previous versions. Right. Uh, so when you right click and you do properties, it would show up with an extra tab that normally never shows up. It's called previous versions. And so on XP, it will only work on the server if it's connected to the server and it's a share. But it will also only work if someone has set up VSS admin correctly. So on a server, like I said, the backup will automatically initiate this VSS admin and it will take a backup of the server. But for a user to go back to their previous versions... On the, the server admin, the admin, the administrator himself, mm -hmm. has to sit down at the DOS prompt on the server. And they have to have space somewhere to store these snapshots. Right. So they could install a second hard drive that could be an old ID hard drive or something just so that it can take these volume snapshots. 
and you have to allocate that space. So there's a command in VSS admin for allocating the space for for these snapshots on the secondary drive. Okay. So there's basically there's basically two or three commands. So you're going to make this command, then you're going to say which share directory do you want to back up to these snapshots? And then you're going to schedule a time. You're going to say, I would like this to happen four times a day. So at 8, 10, 2, and 5, or something like that. And you have to run, you know, like an at command to do that so that it would do it uh, at those time periods. So you can set up VSS admin to take snapshots during the day or at lunch or something like that. Or as many times as you want, as long as you got space to store them. Because you also identify how long the space is that you want. But keep in mind that the server is going to be backed up with tape, you know, that night or the next day or something like that. So you really only need, you know, 24 to 48 hours for those last versions. Otherwise, you have them on tape and you can go recover them from. Um, So that's how it works from the server and from XP's perspective. From Vista and Windows 7, it's built into the file system. So while all these people out there are looking at, you know, they, you know, Apple people go, oh, Time Machine is freaking awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, Time Machine is nothing more than backup, okay? Right. It, like, takes a snapshot of your stuff and puts it on this external hard drive. Right. What's really cool is Windows, Vista, and Windows 7 do live backups on the local drive while you're using them. So if you change your document, so if you have Windows 7 and you're on the road and you've changed your document, you can restore it. Now, the interface for for the restore process for the previous versions mm-hmm. in Windows 7 and Windows Vista only exists in the business editions or the ultimate edition. Okay. And they initially told us that the home and the home premium do not do this function. Right. Turns out to be a complete lie. The all versions of Vista and Windows 7 do this function. They all take snapshots. What's missing is that in the home version, they removed the panel so that you can right-click and say restore previous versions. <laughs> so in other words, they shafted the home user who probably needs it more than the right. corporate user because mm-hmm. the corporate user probably has a backup. Right. And the home user probably needs a backup, and he doesn't have it. Is there, is there a so, way to get to it from those home home versions? Well, well, there is. Um, there's a free tool called Shadow Explorer. So you can use Shadow Explorer to go explore the shadow copies that it makes. Wow. So shadow copies are basically like system restore. It actually calls it system restore in some functions when it's making it. Hmm. But these, uh, these, the instead of just restoring drivers, it restores data too. It restores deltas, and you can take snapshots in time of your whole machine. And it happens automatically in Vista and Windows 7. And so uh, you only really have to force this if you're like an admin of a server and you want to make sure that... because. You really think of the think of it this way. If I'm a if I'm an admin and I want to go home and have dinner with my wife and I keep getting these calls from the CEO who says, you know, twice a week I deleted this file, I want it back or something like that. Right. You could set up VSS admin as the administrator and you could just say you could just phone it in, you say, All right, right click and say restore. And then you'll have it. And you don't have to like log back in and right. go get it from tape or anything right. again. You could, you know, have dinner and not have to worry about it. <laughs> so you'd be a hero. By doing that, um, but in, in Windows Seven, it's just there on the local machine, and that you already have access to it. So look at uh, Shadow Shadow Explorer. Um, there are some blogs. Uh, forensics people know about this particular thing, and so forensics people are using this to actually go back and you know even when you delete your file and then you wiped it, the Shadow copy may still have a copy of the deleted file that already was wiped. <laughs> so. So it's even more so now that it's you know harder to kill that file than it used to be because right. now shadow copies may be there. And so a forensics person may know this and may go extract this file even though you might have wiped the disk. Right. Um, Interesting. So, you know, just from that perspective, it's worth looking at and you may do much more on it. But look for the blogs and stuff too. I know Rob Lee has written some from SANS. Um, I know I've seen some on some other uh, I think right now there was supposed to be a, a presentation from uh, Four Forensics or something that's um, uh, it's a forecast forensics uh, news group. Basically, um, there's a there's a there was one supposedly going on in the UK where they were going to have this presentation on how this works. And I think he just released it publicly this this week uh, with all the ash clouds in the air. He wasn't able to give it. So uh, so if you look for forecast or uh, uh, Lee Whitfield. I think you'll find you'll find what you're looking for from that standpoint. There'll be plenty of information on how they work. Sounds good. I've actually recovered files using that shadow copy or, or yeah, the recovery. Shadow Explorer. Shadow yeah. Explorer. Um, yeah. So that's that. Thanks to Andrew for the email. I appreciate it. Thank you, Scott, for answering the emails. 
Yeah, no problem. That's um, I, that's a lot of good information, I think. And obviously, I'm more about if you could do it preventative. That's the best way to go. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Well, if, if only more of us can do it that way. Yeah, that would be nice. Well, Scott, uh, tell us where we could find you. Uh, when when your next class is going to be? Uh, I think you already did in the beginning, but just tell us again to remind us. Yeah, it's um. So my next class is going to be in San Diego. Uh, it's in the middle of May. So if you go to myharddrivedie.com and you go to the presentations or the classes page, you will see the the locations that are coming up and the dates and times and so on. Uh, I will be doing a uh, supposedly a class in San Francisco in uh, June and then in July back in Atlanta. And then, of course, there's uh, DEF CON coming up as well and Techzilla coming up next week. So there's plenty of things to listen to and see over the next two or three months. Um, and then there's a good chance that in uh, uh, September, so that ties me up through August, and then September, I'm probably going to be in Vegas. I'll probably be doing a um, – I'll be there for DEF CON, obviously, but then I may also be doing a uh, class in Vegas in September. Cool. So if you want to catch up on Scott and, with Scott and get his schedule um you know, documented, recorded, saved, whatever. Just go to myharddrivedied.com. Well, that's going to be it for today's show. Uh, thanks, Scott, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, sorry we couldn't get the live feed up. We're going to try for that next week. We'll see you all next time. Thank you. Music for the Great Tech Debate has been provided by Evan King at purevolume.com slash Evan King.